Hey everyone, welcome to the Pain-Free Golf Performance Podcast, a podcast dedicated towards helping you stay healthy so you can stay on the golf course and not in the clubhouse. We will be covering all things golf, from fitness, performance, injury recovery, instruction, and everything else in between. I am your host, Dr. Russ Manalastis. I am a board-certified sports physical therapist and strength coach based out of Rochester, New York. Our goal with this podcast is to help you play your best golf yet while doing so without limitations. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. All right, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Pain-Free Golf Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Russ. Today, we are joined by local Rochesterian, John Graham. John is a PGA member, full-time putting coach, and owner of John Graham Golf. He's also one of the top putting experts who teaches his methods on the Corn Ferry, European, and PGA Tours. He's also from Aronicoy, so that's why we love local products. So, John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for, for coming on. You bet. I'm happy to be here. So, John, I'm really interested to, to have this talk with you today because I think um, your expertise in putting in the short game, I think, goes a long way. A lot of, a lot of golfers, whether it be um, recreational golfers or people who are trying to play at the next level, putting is something that I think frustrates a lot of people, right? So I think your story and hopefully, you know, what you're going to kind of tell us today can go a long way and hopefully giving people some guidance as to how best maybe improve their putting. So maybe tell us a little bit about your, your background with regards to your journey that ultimately led you kind of to being where you are today. Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I I grew up here in Rochester, lived here my whole life, except for a couple of years when I lived in Kentucky when my wife was doing her master's. But uh, I didn't get into golf until much later. I was a bowler as a kid. Okay. Uh, I bowled at Pire Lanes, did the whole travel team. I actually bowled in college at Michigan State where oh, I went wow. to school. I got into golf not until after I graduated college. Okay. Um, there was one summer that I played golf as a kid. My mother and her sister used to live right by Duran Eastman. Okay. And, and back then, you could play during the summer at Duran for $4 for the season plus a dollar <laughs> every time you went to go play. So she would drop me off there for one whole summer, and I would play that summer, and I really enjoyed it. But then all the friends that I had met, after that golf season was over, like Labor Day hits and bowling starts, and the golf's over. Right. So all my friends went bowling, and I went, well, I want to do, go do that too. And for me at that time, the idea of a perfect score – which bowling had and golf didn't have right. was significantly more appealing to my perfectionist type right. attitude. Right. So I, I didn't pick up another golf club for uh, nearly 20 years after that and bowled wow. uh, all the way since then. Wow. That's it. That's uh, after, after I got into golf, I worked at Webster golf club for a long time. I started out as a cart kid and then worked at the range and worked at the shop. And that time I decided, okay, well, I want to, I want to play. I, I, I learned it pretty fast. I got pretty good, pretty quick. Yeah. And tried to pursue that route, uh, became an assistant pro at Webster. And then uh, my s- future wife at that time, we moved down to Kentucky. I was an assistant pro down there. Uh, and that's when I started teaching at okay. a course called Gibson Bay, which is in Richmond, Kentucky. Okay. And um, I didn't really have any aspirations to teach. I still wanted to go play. Yeah. Worked down in Florida for a bunch of winters, trying to play. Got my teeth kicked in pretty good. It's like, okay, this is, this is not going to work. <laughs> and, and then I went heavy into the teaching route. I got a job up back here up at Midvale. I was okay, an assistant yeah. pro at Midvale for a long time. Nice. And then uh, became the golf coach at MCC. Uh, so this is now like 2004, five, six, something like that. Yeah. Started coaching there. And, and that's what I really decided, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to coach big time college golf. Really, really enjoyed that job. We were very successful. We had won three national championships, one of the best awesome. JUCO college teams there were. Yeah. And I uh, took an interview down at Tulane University. Oh, yeah. Right after the hurricane, they were rebuilding their golf program, which is right in New Orleans. Yeah. They offered me the job. And at this time, now I've got three kids. 
there was no family medical. There was no anything like that. I'm like, I can't take it. There's no way I can move to New Orleans with no health insurance. Right. My wife was a teacher, so she had great New York State health benefits right. uh, through the teachers union. And uh, so I'm like, okay, well, this isn't going to work. And then I got into more full swing teaching out at Webster Golf Club. I had left Midvale, went back to Webster as their director of instruction and did that for quite a long time. Ran into this company called Aimpoint Golf, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, which really got me into the putting side of things. And from there is kind of how it grew into what I'm doing now, which is basically full-time putting instruction on the tour. Wow. That's a, so again, and I think the, the circumstances, the way you talked about, again, you know, with the, the position at Tulane and obviously the circumstances of having kids, things like that, sometimes life happens, right? When life happens, exactly. you, you, you can only kind of go where you feel like you're most comfortable doing so, right? So um, maybe kind of speak a little bit more about, again, your, your journey with regards to MCC. I'm really interested to kind of hear that because we, we do see a good amount of collegiate golfers, right? Yeah. So maybe kind of tell us your experience with, you know, coaching college golf and, you know, what, what really kind of gravitated you towards that? Yeah, so it, it all started at, uh, so when I was at Midvale, there was another assistant pro there. His name was Mike Keel. Yeah. He's now actually the head pro at Midvale. He is. And uh, when Mike got the job as the assistant pro at Midvale, he also got the job as the men's golf coach at MCC. Got it. So a couple of years into that position, the pro at Midvale left to take another job. And Mike and I both applied for the head pro job at Midvale. And, um, and Mike got the job and I didn't get the job. So when he got the head pro job, I got the coaching job at MCC. Got it. Uh, probably the best thing that ever happened to me was not getting that head pro job. So I, I took to the coaching part uh, really heavily because I, I really enjoyed the kids. They were highly motivated. Because I had been teaching in the area quite a bit, the kids that came to MCC were usually very good golfers, but their grades were a little bit, a little soft. Yeah. So like the culture part of coaching at MCC was very, very simple. Some of these kids that I had worked with, I'd put a club in their hand as a, as a kid. Like I, I had known them their entire lives. Right. Then they come to work, you know, play for me at MCC. So it was really a lot of fun having, you know, kids that I'd known. The culture was really easy. We were very, very good relative to our division and size. Sure. And, um, for a long time, I pursued that career highly. I wanted to be a big-time golf coach. Yeah. It, just, it just didn't work out. But sure. during that time is how I got you know, used to dealing with all the travel, dealing with different personalities, and okay, how do I speak one way to one person, one way to another person. It really kind of amplified the learning environment because it's a little bit more group-based, a little bit more intensive, and you know, I had a, a motivated group of kids that wanted to do well. They didn't just come play MCC golf because it was an easy, nice. fun thing to do. Right. They, they wanted to win. So it was uh, really rewarding that way. That's got to be cool to kind of see kids kind of, you know, start at a young age with you, right? Whether it be at Webster or wherever you were, you're doing instruction and then come see them come full circle to you know, have you be the coach at MCC. That's got to yeah. be a pretty cool experience. Yeah, it, it was really cool. Uh, and, I mean, both for them and, and for myself. Uh, by the time I, so a couple of years after I, got the coaching job that I left Midvale and that's when I went back to Webster. And, and a lot of the kids that I had met, you know, during my time at Midvale were came to MCC. Cause there was a, there was a girl that I used to teach from Rochester. Her name was Tessa Teachman, who was one of the best junior golfers at that time. This is now nearly 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and her success was nationally based. So a lot of kids in the area heard about Tessa, heard about her coach, and then it, they all just started to come to me. And that's how it kind of grew from yeah. basically from, from her and her dad. Sure. Yeah. And I think too, like when you talk about coaching, right. And especially in a group format and uh, in the collegiate setting, 
you know, there, there is an art to that, right? As much as, you know, maybe we're, we're taught to do one thing or another with all the different personalities and how they kind of manage adversity or difficulties or struggles. Um, I think there's a long, there's, there's something to be said about being a coach and, and trying to figure out each and every nuance of managing athletes, right? And um, at the collegiate level, when it's more magnified and they're as competitive as they can be, regardless if it's MCC or a big time school, right. again, the athlete itself, trying to manage them and trying to kind of har- harness whatever they can to improve their performance. I mean, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a fine art that I think a lot of coaches um, really, really gravitate towards. I think that's why you maybe kind of gravitated towards it that way too. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with all that, yeah. So maybe kind of tell us a little bit more about, you know, again, obviously we, we're going to talk a little bit about Aimpoint, but maybe kind of tell us about your journey into specializing in putting, right? And that, you know, was that something that, you know, when you were playing yourself, was putting something that came naturally to you or easy to you, or was that something that you had to kind of pick up? Maybe kind of speak on that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I was actually a horrible putter uh, in the beginning. I was, I was a prolific ball striker. I hit my irons incredibly well. Short game was really good. The reason that I couldn't continue to compete was I would usually hit one drive out of bounds way right. And I just, I, I would wait for the round to go through and say, when is this coming? And then it would come and I was like, okay, well, there's my two shots. I'm out of this. But, but yeah, I was a, I was a terrible putter. And when I got the job at Midvale, there's, there's a putting green right outside the pro shop. Yep. And the golf pro staff had to wait for the entire night for all the carts to come in and whatnot. And usually late at night, there would be one or two people out there and I would just go out on the putting green and I would, I taught myself how to be a better putter. Right. And I'm like, okay, this is a learnable skill. It's not voodoo. It's not God given. It's not something that you either have or you don't have. This is something that you can learn. Yeah. So personally, that's how I accepted putting as a, as a learnable skill, not just something that some guys were good at and other people weren't. When I was at MCC, a good chunk of the players that ended up at MCC were also very good ball strikers that couldn't putt too well. So I, a lot of my job at MCC was getting players to make more putts. And part of that impetus was how I ran into Aimpoint. I was just searching online for putting information, and I ran across a video talking about that, which I'll get into later. Sure. And and it's that that kind of set me in on that path of, okay, how do I teach players how to read a green, which is basically what Aimpoint is. And then from that position, uh, because it was so new, there was interest in it from all over the world. It was something that had never been done before, never been taught before. Right. And because I was the first person certified to ever teach it, aside from the guy who founded it, right. uh, I became the go-to person for coaches all over the world. It's like, how do I want to learn this? And then I started traveling all over the world, teaching other coaches how to teach their students how to teach it. Sure. So I became a putting guy in that way. I my full-time job for a while after I left MCC was just traveling the world, just teaching Aimpoint. Crazy. So I became known as the Aimpoint guy. Right. Uh, and, uh, and it was a skill that was needed enough on the, on the PGA tour that I started showing up at events for players wanting to learn how to do this particular thing. Sure. And, and it became pretty clear to me early on that, well, even if I can teach somebody how to read a green, if they can't do these other things, they still can't make a putt. They can miss it a lot closer, <laughs> but eventually you have to turn a miss into a make to make improvement actually happen. Right. So then I started doing my own kind of self-research on the stroke and distance control and how do I actually teach somebody how to make more putts. And then it's just kind of blossomed from there. That's pretty cool. I figured out, yeah. And I think too, like you fill the void, right? I think a lot of times people always kind of gravitate to what they maybe kind of struggle at and how to improve that. And for you, Maybe, who maybe wasn't really great at putting, you took it upon yourself to say, hey, how can I learn to be, become better at this? And then I think once you teach it to yourself and all of a sudden you come up with this framework, 
then you can potentially teach it to other people. And again, I think that's kind of how we maybe kind of fell into this. And then once you came across Aimpoint, it sounded like it was a, it was a pretty good relationship that you kind of started there. Exactly. I, I was always, as I mentioned earlier, kind of a perfectionist and I've always been a why person. Yeah. Uh, I was always the kid in class who had his hand up that was you know, bothering everybody else. Like, why don't you just shut up and let the teacher talk and we'll learn this. I was like, well, no, I was like, what about this? What about right. this? What about this? <laughs> so uh, I approached my own learning in that way. I never wanted to be a teacher that had a student come to them like myself with a lot of why questions that I couldn't answer. Right. So I had to learn the why of, okay, well, if I'm going to get better at putting, what are the things that are necessary? What's required? Okay, you need this, 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 and this. Okay, let me learn these things. Okay, does this work? Okay, throw out what doesn't, keep what does. Okay, then we take this to somebody new that has a whole different set of problems, what works, what doesn't work. And aim point was the last final piece of the why. It was, it was why the ball breaks the way that it does, why it breaks, how much that it does. And it was all science-based, which is something that I really enjoyed as well. Yeah. So now I could take the mechanical why and apply it to the green reading part why, and then just work kind of through the rest of it. So it, it, it was really kind of a perfect storm for my personality. Sure. that it answered the questions that I needed to get answered. Yeah. And I think too, when you look at it either from the putting side or either less from our side, like sports physical therapy, rehab, training, performance, we want that, we want that why as well, right? We're not just going to, you know, blindly give someone something to do just to fill time. We want to know the why behind it. And if we're not giving that why, we're not explaining it to that person, then they can't get that buy-in either, right? If they're just gradually going through a workout or a training session and not understanding why they're doing it, then you're just kind of spinning your wheels at that point in time, right? So yeah. I, I think my my personality and my mindset kind of gravitates much like yours, where I want to know, hey, I want to know everything about sports, sports, sports physical therapy, how to get better, someone better faster so that we can put them back on the course or whatever sport so they can play at a high level. And again, it's not a one-size-fits-all system, right? You might have the framework, right? Yeah. But ultimately, you need to figure out from there what are the nuances that work best for them, what doesn't work, and then try and ultimately kind of mold it that way. And I think that's what you're kind of speaking to. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about Aimpoint, right? So I, I know, obviously, you know, you know, since then, you've kind of gravitated towards maybe having your own philosophy, but maybe kind of speak to Aimpoint's kind of structure and system as to how best to teach people how to kind of maybe read greens or teach, like maybe kind of speak upon that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So uh, Aimpoint was uh, founded by a guy named Mark Sweeney who lives down in Orlando. And it was originally based to be a TV product, which it was on the Golf Channel for many years. And it basically would simulate uh, during the telecast the line that the ball should have to roll on for it to go in. So it'd be a similar kind of overlay like the first down line in a football game. They just display it right on the green. And in order for that to be accurate, he would have to take a 3D scan of the green and then apply a physics model to say, okay, well, based on the speed of the green, based on the wind, the type of grass, how much slope, how far the ball is, all of these things, the physics would just say, well, the ball needs to do this for it to actually go in based on a certain speed that you hit the ball. Got it. So Aimpoint was the solution to that on a scientific side of based on how far away you are, based on what the green shape is between your ball and the hole, based on the stimp of the green or how fast the green is, where you have to aim this thing to make it. Yeah. So it was, so it started as a very complicated engineering based math model. Sure. Uh, and when we taught it, we taught it that way. It wasn't very appealing to a lot of people, but all the yeah. accountants and engineers and doctors, they, they loved it. Right. Everybody else was like, this is way too intense. <laughs> and over the years, it got a lot more simple. And, uh, and they developed a thing called Aimpoint Express, which you, a lot of your watchers may have seen where they see golfers on television putting fingers up. And, and basically what that is designed to do is 
give the player kind of a window of where the where the answer should be. So basically what they do is they feel the ground to try to get a sense for how much slope the ground is tilted in one direction. So they stand on it and they use their balance and their field to say, okay, based on how my body is adjusting to something that's not level, I'm going to quantify that imbalance. Got it. Then whatever that number is, is how many fingers they hold up. So they have to train by standing on the ground. They'll use a, a level that has a digital readout and say, okay, I think this ground feels like it's tilted a two. Then they put the level down, they measure it, and they train themselves. Okay, this actually was a three. And they have to learn that feel and that skill to then be able to apply it to the golf course. Got it. And it, it is absolutely a learnable skill. Similar to most skills, if you don't do it for a while, it gets worse. A right. lot of people think when they do it that they've, and they get fairly good at it, then that they have it. And then they just stop training it, and they lose it. Just like, I'm sure, sports therapy and any other sports. You get to a certain mobility or range of motion, and then you say, okay, I'm fine. And then they stop training, and they lose it. You got it. Exact same thing in this particular skill. Yeah. Um, the thing that makes it really challenging and why a lot of players don't stay with it is that putting is just not a perfect, simple math model. The green is not an even, consistent slope most of the time. Right. So you might go stand and feel in a couple of places and say, okay, this is this and this is that. And then you get it all right. But then a place that you didn't stand has something different in it. And it changes the trajectory of the ball. And now your answer is no longer good. Right, right. And most golfers, especially high-level golfers, are not going to blame themselves when they get something wrong. They're going to blame the system. So this system doesn't work. Right. And if I had looked at it, I would have got that right. So it's a very uh, difficult thing for a lot of players to accept to try to use it as a single-based answer system. So I never, te I never teach it that way. I teach it much more as, well, the window of the answers is somewhere between here and here. Now you look at it, you use your local knowledge, you use your feel to say, okay, well, this is the answer I'm going to go with. And it's, it's more for me, the way I teach it, designed to tell the player where the, where the answers aren't. Okay, it's not down here and it's not up there. It's somewhere in here. Yeah. Now you use your expertise and athleticism to figure out the rest. Got it. It's normally taught if people go research it that it's going to give you the exact answer my experience in the anecdotal world says, okay, well, the answer is going to be good sometimes, but it's not going to be good enough right. to keep people doing it. Right. There's no question that it's a skill accelerator for someone who's new to the game to learn how to read a green in a week or two. Got it. They can get really good, really fast instead of trial and error, which is how we normally learn it. Right. They can get a much clearer picture as, okay, when I see this, I get this. When I feel this, I get that. And it's much easier, much more uh, stronger feedback Got than it. other things. Got it. The problem that I run across is the level of golfer that I'm dealing with most of the time has 30 years or 20 years of history. Right. They look at something and say, okay, when I see this, the ball is going to do that. And I'm like, well, no, the ball actually does this. Yeah, whatever, dude, you're coach. I'm playing the game. You shut <laughs> up and let me do my job. Right. So part of the skill set that I have to deal with is how do I work within those constraints and confines that the player is bringing to the table and kind of evolve and kind of nudge them in a direction that, is better for them. Got it. Um, but you know, there's a, there's another certified instructor in Rochester. His name is Sean Lally. Oh yeah. Um, he teaches out at Ravenwood as the golf yeah. coach at Nazareth. Okay. And, um, and there's a guy in Syracuse and I think there's a guy in Buffalo. So there's a bunch of guys all over the place and uh, females as well that, yeah. that teach it. It's a two hour class and uh, you'll get a really good idea as to how to read a green very quickly. And then as long as you practice it, yeah, uh, you will improve. No question. Well, it's funny. I've, I've, I've heard of Sean's name. I'm, I'm an adjunct professor at NAS and I've heard his name okay. a times. So that maybe, maybe I need to look into that a little bit more and see if yeah. we can kind of connect at some point. Yeah. So 
John, was this, I guess, framework or structure or methodology, was this something that was easy to pitch to people when you were trying to implement it? Was it something that gradually kind of people kind of started to kind of accept as they became more familiar with it? I mean, how hard was this to try and implement or at least try and get people or players to buy into because of a lot of the science behind it? Uh, gosh, that's a great question. I would say it would depend on the player. A lot of coaches wanted to know it because yeah. they wanted to be able to teach it to their students. Got it. There's also a, a series of coaches that didn't want anything to do with it because <laughs> it was too sciencey. Right. And they want they putting should be an art and it should be all feel and there should there's no place for science and putting. Right. And I would I would say the players kind of fit into those categories as well. There's certain players that seek out information yeah. as a as a method for improvement. Yeah. And then there's other players that seek out a feel or a or a belief right. for a method of improvement. And and neither one of them is wrong. Yeah. Uh, both can work. It's personality based. So uh, once the express system came around with the finger thing, the adoption rate went, went way up. The, the science part, we, there used to be a chart. You had to do math. There was very few people that were willing to do that right. much work to just right. play around the golf. Right. Once it got easy, it, it, the adoption rate got really high because now kids could do it. Beginners could do it like on the very first day. Yeah. If somebody couldn't do math quickly, they couldn't do it before. Now they could just, you know, it was, it was so simplified and it was close enough yeah. that it was, it was shocking how similar the, the finger answers got down to the actual math. Interesting. Once a person got, you know, calibrated based on their finger size and arm yeah. length. And there was a whole ways around all these yeah. potential pitfalls, sure. but you know, it, it, it varied quite a bit. Yeah. There, there's not too many players on tour that you see doing it. I mean, Adam Scott for sure is one. There's a lot of players that do pieces of it. Like they might just go stand and feel just to get an idea, but they don't put the fingers up. Yeah. There's a lot of caddies that'll do it that you may not see on TV because they're kind of off camera. Sure. For anybody who is considering playing high level professional golf, they need to know it. Right. Whether they use it or not, right. uh, they, they need to know that this information is out there. Same for a coach. If you're teaching putting, you have to know this. And I think too, like, like you said, you know, a lot of golfers, they, they go by feel and other golfers, they want the objective numbers. I mean, yeah. I think having a blend of both of those, it sounds like that's kind of where you stand, right? It's, it's exactly. kind of figuring out how can I blend the objective part of, you know, the, the science behind it and blend it with the feel of the golfer or the athlete that you're, you're training or coaching and try and come to some formal agreement in between, right? And I think that sounds like what you've kind of done. Exactly right. I'm, I'm just trying to push probability a little bit in their favor. Sure. I'm going to say, okay, your answer is between four and eight inches. Now we know that it's not less than four. We know that it's not more than eight. Now the probability of him getting closer to the right answer is higher. Got now it. you do your thing. And if it's a little bit off, it's never going to be the coach's fault because you chose your final answer. Right. If, if you made a choice outside the window, then, then now we've got something to work through, but mm. it, it gives the players enough uh, say and enough freedom to still be an athlete yeah. within a, some some range it's just like you know you need to know how far your seven iron goes it goes between this yardage and this yardage right. if you hit it on a different <laughs> range why did you pick that club right. it's, it's, putting can fall into that same realm if, if you're teaching it in that way got it yeah so you know again as you uh being a a, a putting coach you know what are what are some things well what, I, I, let's put it this way what's the number one thing that you see golfers whether it's recreational or professional, what's the number one thing that you see golfers struggle with the most when it comes to putting? The number one thing by far is that the players aren't doing what they think that they're doing. Mm. Putting is the one that has the hardest way to create proper feedback. 
Okay. You hit a shot and you see the ball fly. That's the feedback. Yeah. If you hit a putt and you watch the ball roll, well, you don't really know where you aimed it. You don't really know where you started it. You don't really know if you read it right. right. There's a whole list of things that are very hard to generate uh, feedback from versus a regular full shot. Right. So, and this is true at every level. Nobody aims it where they say they do. <laughs> Nobody can read a green very well. Right. Well, that's, that's too strong. Very few people can read a green well. And because of those two things, there's a constant battle between what a player intends to do, what they think they should do, and then what they feel like they want to do when they get up over the ball. Sure. Almost every golfer will read a putt differently than they feel like they want. And I'm sure anybody listening will can subscribe to the idea where they just, they, they read a putt, they look at it and say, okay, I, I think it's a cup out. Then they get over it and they're like, oh, no, I need something else. Yeah, yeah. That difference is the most common problem that I see in golf is that uh, a player's true understanding of what actually happens versus what they think is about to happen yeah. is not the same. Got it. One of my big jobs is to try to show people how to put those two together, which can be a very dangerous task on my part. Right. If I take someone who's very, very good and they read a putt and they say, well, okay, it's four inches out. And then they get up and they hit it eight inches out and it goes in. Yep. See four inches out. I'm like, no, that's not, <laughs> not four inches out. <laughs> right. So I've got to, I've got to walk this tightrope and figure out, okay, how do I get this player to understand what's really happening sure. so that when they go play, they have less uh, discomfort. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be the biggest for sure. There's, there's a big difference between what they believe is going to happen and what actually is happening. So, John, can you maybe uh, maybe kind of shed some light as to maybe what a, a day looks like for you? Like, if you're at a tour or an event, like, what does a typical day look for, like for you? Are you with your athletes, you know, pretty much all day? Or how, how, does, that, how does that work for you? In yeah, so, it, uh, schedule, so it's, yeah, just in terms of schedule, in terms of just kind of how you kind of, you know, frame your day. Yeah, so uh, any particular event, there's upwards of eight people that I currently work with that could be there. Now, luckily for me, probably half of those – players are playing I would say like the B tour and the other half are playing like the A tour the, the schedules are such that not everybody can play all the time some guys qualifying for majors other guys aren't so I'm, I'm usually with three to four five players a week Got it. and most of my players are pretty malleable they're they're comfortable working within the confines of everyone else's schedule because everybody's dealing things they're playing they've got sponsor things yeah. and they're all trying to work uh, what I do. So I'll usually get there either Sunday night or Monday. Yeah. Sunday night, if it's like a major or a really big thing, uh, usually Monday, if not, because most of the players won't get there till Monday. Got it. Players don't practice Monday. It's travel day. Got it. So then on uh, Monday, I'll start setting up what Tuesday will look like. I don't like to sit on the putting green a lot. I like to go walk the course and talk to the players and, and work and prepare for the actual event right. out on the golf course which used to be really easy because I used to only work with one or two people and it would be one guy in the morning, one guy in the afternoon. Okay. It's great. Uh, I've gotten busy enough now that I've, it's gotten a lot more difficult to be able to do those kinds of things. So there's some guys that I've been with longer that get a little bit more of my time. And it's usually maybe half hour, 45 minutes on the putting green, just kind of check things, make sure they're okay. Then go play nine holes. And then the next guy, half hour or so on the putting green, go play nine holes. That might be Monday. And then Tuesday I would do the same thing with two other guys. And the, the two guys that I don't see on Monday, I usually do just some putting work at the end of the day with. And then the two guys I don't see on Tuesday, the guys that I saw on Monday, I'll do that same thing again on Tuesday. Got it. So once the tournament starts, 
Uh, my job is to help them warm up. And depending on how their schedules fall, I get to go watch a little bit, see what they're actually doing in the real world, compare it to what I'm seeing in practice and on the putting green, and then be ready for them when they get done for a cool down or a chat or, or whatever. Cool. Um, so it's, it's, it's usually sun up to sundown most days during the practice days, yeah. uh, the play day, except Wednesday. Wednesday, usually a lot of guys like to cut out early to get yeah. ready for the tournament. And then Thursday, Friday, just depends on what the waves are like. If everybody's in the morning, it's a nice short day. If everybody's in the afternoon, same thing. If they're mixed, which is usually the case, it's all day. Got it. And I think, you know, the reason why I want to kind of bring that up, because a lot of times when listeners are listening to this, hey, I want to work with a professional athlete. I want to work on the professional ranks, whatever it may be. I think they look at the, the glam and the glory, right? But they don't look at what the work is put in behind the scenes, right? And I think that exactly. goes- Yeah, most of the work is not happening at the event. The work is happening somewhere else and then the event is maintenance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think what we wanted to kind of highlight there is just, you know, the, the amount of work that you put prior to the event, it probably goes a, a long ways than more, more people realize at that point in time. Yeah. So let's do this. Let's transition to uh, what's uh, our segment's called, What's in the Bag, right? Okay. So we always like to kind of hear what guests on the show are swinging. So maybe give us an idea as to uh, what John Graham is swinging in your bag right now. Oh, this is going to sound really bad. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have four sets of clubs. Okay. And, and each set is missing a seven iron. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the, the seven iron used to be the club that I used to teach with when I used to teach full swing. And I haven't purchased a new set of clubs since I stopped teaching full swing. Got it. The last set of clubs that I purchased, uh, at least 10 years old, is a set of Cleveland TA4s, I think. Okay. No 7-iron. I have a Callaway Steelhead Plus 3-wood. Oh, I. That I've had for a long time. And I've got a Ping I-15 driver, maybe. Okay. Very old. Oh, yeah. Old technology yeah. there. Yeah. I, like, I mean... Uh, I haven't played golf last. I didn't play any golf last year. Okay. I played nine holes the year before. Golf is almost gone for me. Sure. The time that I'm away is significant enough now that when I'm home, I don't. I, I'm not going to go play golf. I'm going to stay home with my kids and family and whatnot. Right. Right. Uh, once my kids get even more older, I, I used to say once my kids started going to college, I would start playing more. That didn't happen. <laughs> so, golf for me now has become more work than it is play. I, I do like to go putt quite a bit. I still, I still have to be sharp enough to be able to deal with challenges that my players will say, well, here, you do it, which, which is going to happen quite often in golf, especially. Right. Um, but, yeah, I, my, my clubs are a weak, a weak point for sure. <laughs> well, why don't you maybe kind of speak upon the putter that you have? What kind of putter do you have? The putter that I uh, have used the most is a putter from Sweden. It's called an MLA putter. Okay. Uh, it's black and white. Uh, Odyssey kind of copied them recently with their black lines on it and white lines on it. Okay. Uh, it's a mallet that's basically a Swedish version of an Adele putter. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Adele company. No. Uh, the Adele putter company was a company that was founded maybe 10 years ago that was designed to teach players how to aim a putter better. Okay. So it was a putter aiming fitting system Got it. that players would come and show up and there would all be different kind of hosels and lines and head shapes and say, okay, once we get the right configuration of things, we're going to make you aim as good as you can. Okay. This is like a Swedish version of that, okay. of that idea. They embraced it a lot differently than Adele did, but it's the one that I've used probably since 2009. Okay. Uh, as, a, as a kid, I was an 8802 guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was a blade putter. And then I was a two ball guy for a long, long time. 
And then uh, I've kind of gravitated toward mallets ever since then. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so let's do this. Let's do our shotgun round. So our shotgun round is basically going to ask you a series of questions. You're going to try and answer as quickly as you can, okay? Yeah. Uh, favorite golfer for you? Calvin Pete for me. Okay. Yeah, when I, got, when I first started getting into golf, I went back and started looking at, okay, who was really straight? Because I, I, I didn't hit very far, but I hit it very, very accurately. And I sure. kind of want to watch to see who the straight guys were, so like the Corey Pavins and the Kelvin yeah. Pete, and the yeah. Mike Reeds and those guys, yeah. Awesome. How about favorite golf brand? Ooh, favorite golf brand. Probably as it, as it relates to me, I'd probably say Callaway. They've been very, very good to me. That's great. Yeah. Uh, how about preferred drink or snack while you're either playing? Now, again, you haven't played in a long time, but how about when you're on the course with, let's say, your, your golfers? Yeah, it's usually a banana or a trail mix. Okay. How about, how about uh, any preferred drink? Water? Just water, yeah. Water. I, I, will, I will have a Gatorade once in a while if I'm feeling quite weak, but usually okay. water. All right. So in, in your playing days or when you do play, do you prefer a par three or par five? Par three for sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about cart or walk? Walking with a caddy is the best way to play golf, in my opinion. Yeah. If, if I'm trying to just get some golf in, card is the faster one for sure. Yeah. We've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, walking with a caddy. I think that could go along. It's, it's a special way to play. Yeah, for sure. All right, how about favorite movie, Caddyshack or Happy Gilmore? Yeah, Caddyshack by Mark. <laughs> cool. Right. All right, so I'm, I'm sure you've had a lot of these, but how about a, a favorite golf memory for you? My favorite golf memory would have been the, our first national championship at MCC. So awesome. this has been uh, 2000. Uh, six. Okay. Uh, we had a very, very good team. We shot a national record that will probably never be beat. And it was really cool to see. And, and also that same year, Mike Colosi, who was a student of mine, he won the individual title. So we, okay. we saw the whole thing. Uh, that was really cool for them. That's and, awesome. Yeah. All right. How about uh, someone you'd recommend we reach out to be a guest on the show? Well, Sean Lally would be the guy I would recommend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like that's a natural progression there. Yeah. Yeah, he'd be, he'd be uh, I mean, he's a, a really good friend. We've known each other a very long time. And now I think he might actually be just full-time NAS coach. Because he, he used to do, uh, was, was also doing like a titleist fitting, so you could yeah. get on the fitting side of things. Yeah. And he was a full swing coach at Ravenwood for a long, long time. I'm, I assume he's still doing that in the summertime. Yeah, so, yeah he would be the, he'd be the guy I'd recommend. Awesome. We'll have to reach out to him for sure. All right, so, you know, one, we appreciate your time for coming on and, you know, you know, talking some wisdom here, but maybe for someone who's looking for some guidance or maybe some, like for some structure or framework when it comes to improving their golf game, in, in particular putting, yeah. you know, what would be some recommendations you would start with? You know, again, if you think back to when you were at Midvale and you were trying to figure out, hey, this is what I want to do in order to get better, what are some pieces of advice or some words of wisdom you would give golfers when it comes to a framework as to how to improve their putting? So there'd be, there'd be two things. The, the first thing being is that you've got to have some, some kind of start line control station so that you can practice your stroke and say, does the ball start where it needs to start? Uh, it's not about making a perfect stroke. It's about making the ball go where you need it to go. Right. Um, so there's going to be some kind of uh, chalk line with tees that controls your ability to aim and your ability to start it through a very tight, restricted area. I wouldn't do it to a hole. It's just start line control. And you should do that at the start of every practice and at the end of every practice, and then usually one time in the middle. It's awesome. kind of, well, I call it a home base. Yeah. Thing that you do to warm up, and then every once in a while you go back and check, make sure everything's okay, and then you close and say, okay, everything's still okay, I can go home. Got it. After that, the green reading feedback piece is the next thing that most golfers need structure with. Yeah. Uh, each putt that you get ready to hit, whether it's three, four, five, 10, 20 feet, you need to place some kind of 
trail of what you think the ball is going to do. You might use coins or ball markers or something, and you just kind of track out your picture of what the path of the ball should be like. Sure. You might use three or four coins and say, okay, the ball is going to be here, then it's going to be there, then here, then it's going to go in. And you're going to use that image to compare to what the ball actually does. Got it. Here's what I think it's going to do. Here's what the ball really does. What piece am I missing here? It's, it's the main feedback piece that most people are missing. That they, if, Once they can compare what they see is happening versus what's really happening, then they can learn. Yeah. Um, without those things, they can just tell, well, the ball is not where it's supposed to be, and they usually blame their stroke. Right. So they never really get to the part of learning, okay, what should the ball do? It's like, oh, I must have pushed that. Oh, I must have pulled that. Yeah. And that may not have been the case at all, but you actually read it completely poorly. They need to be able to see that they've either read it well or didn't read it well so that they can accurately determine if they started it well or not. Yeah. It's really, really simple. It takes a while. Yeah. It takes a lot of discipline to set it up each time. I I wouldn't do the same putt more than once. That's not golf. You have one try to get the picture. You have one try to test the picture. You get it right. Great. If you get it wrong, great. Move on and do another one. Don't keep trying to adjust the picture to make it right. Huh. Try it again on a different putt. Yeah. And I think if you look at most golfers, right, when they're on the putting green, they're practicing the same putt over and over and over again. And and I think to your first piece of advice, when you're not using a hole, I think people struggle with that because they want the end result, right? They want the end result. Exactly. They're practicing a result. They're not practicing a process. Exactly, right? And I think when you're looking at the abstractness of, hey, not using a hole, people struggle with that. They, they struggle with, hey, well, I need to see it go somewhere, right? As opposed to, hey, you just need to hit into that window that we're kind of talking about. Yeah. 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 Well, John, this has been a great conversation. And one, we appreciate your time. For those who want to learn more about you or maybe want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? I know you've got some products and things like that. Maybe you can kind of speak about that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So there's a, uh, there's a short game video series that a, a friend of mine started. He lives in the UK. His name is James Ridyard. He's a wedge coach, works for Francesco Molinari and a bunch of other tour guys. So we see each other at events. We developed a video series maybe about six, seven years ago, and then we've continued to update it throughout. And it's a, it's a website called shortgamesecrets.tv is where you can find all that kind of stuff. I don't have a website personally. The easiest way to get a hold of me is probably on social media, either on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, You can just type in at John Graham golf and you'll find me there. Other than that, I'm a pretty under the radar kind of guy. There's very few people in Rochester know what I actually do. (laughs) I I don't work in Rochester very often. Uh, I do teach a little bit at cobblestone when players come in from out of town. uh, And there's maybe one or two guys still in Rochester that harassing me enough that I'll get me out of my house and (laughs) and get me to teach a little bit. But, I'm not, I'm no longer club affiliated, so I don't, I don't teach much here at home, but Got it. Uh, social media and, and that other place is the best way to get me. And uh, for our listeners, we'll put all your contact information in the show notes so that they can kind of reach yeah, out right. and figure out how best to kind of contact you. Yeah, you can feel free to get my email and stuff too. That's all. Perfect. That's all. Awesome. Well, John, thanks so much for your time. You know, listeners, if you want more information, go check out the show notes so you can kind of figure out how best to kind of reach out to John. And then we'll catch you next time on the Pain-Free Golf Performance Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks. Hey everyone, thanks so much again for listening to this week's episode of the Pain-Free Golf Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content of this show, we would love it if you would leave an iTunes review to help us grow and expand our ability to provide you with the golf information you are seeking. If you're listening to this show and are dealing with aches, pains, or issues from golf that haven't been resolved, or you're not exactly sure where to turn, then let us know how we can help. 
Whether you are local or not, you can work directly with us through our pain-free golf performance program, which is completely virtual and online. This program is customized to you and your goals of playing your best golf yet. We would assess how well you move to give us a baseline of what you can do, and then based on that assessment, come up with a training program best suited for you. We are offering a special podcast promotion, which gives you access to our program at a reduced rate. You can inquire by going to manaperformancetherapy.com forward slash pain-free golf. Again, mana is spelled M-A-N-A. So it's manaperformancetherapy.com forward slash pain-free golf and use the promo code podcast when inquiring so we can help you feel better and play better golf. Be sure to tune into next week's episode and we'll catch you then.